what they're doing right now is amazing and we want to make their lives as easy as we possibly can. This week we are bringing to you a two-part episode in honor of the World Health Assembly organized by the World Health Organization. The first part of the episode will feature three people who are working on new devices to deliver healthcare in complicated places. The second part of this episode will feature three women who are working to ensure that half the population is involved in the health conversations that will shape our future. But before we jump into that discussion, listeners should know that our guests who participate in this podcast do so in their personal capacity. They are volunteering their time, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed belong solely to the discussant alone and do not necessarily represent the official position or policy of their employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. That is the end of our boringly necessary legal disclaimer. But before we get started, I want to thank the United Nations Information Service for making available to us the historic League of Nations radio studio. Now, dear guests, if you would, please introduce yourself. What do you do and where are you from? I am Jocelyn Brown. I'm from Berkeley, California, and I'm a product manager at Third Stone Design. My name is Vinesh Kapil. I'm from Washington, D.C. I work at the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, and I uh, help lead one of the uh, Grand Challenge programs at USAID called Saving Lives at Birth. Hi, I'm Mary Carmel Kearney, and I am from Queen's University in Belfast, where I work in the School of Pharmacy, and I work as a research fellow developing microneedles as a novel drug delivery technology. Why are you all here in Geneva today? WHO, the World Health Organization, is hosting a global forum on medical devices. It was really launched in response to the need to uh, pull together a community of medical device innovators, talk about the successes that they've seen in, in the field of medical device development, but then also the challenges that still remain. Yeah, so the reason I was interested in coming to this event was as I am working on a very novel drug delivery technology and we want to learn what is going on in other parts of the world, um, particularly in terms of regulation and advancement and where exactly will our product fit in in terms of medical devices, um, particularly with a global perspective. I found it to be really interesting that uh, there's so many people attending from so many places and you know, just their perspective on devices, whether it's, you know, devices used in sub-Saharan Africa or in U.S. or U.K., it's, you know, um, I'm not exposed to, to all of these um, innovators in these different areas, so it's been very enlightening to see all the work that's being done around the world. What other things have inspired you this week in the meetings that you've been in? Well, that's quite a question, and there has been a lot, actually, that I find quite encouraging. And I think, for example, today I was attending the injectable safety um, meeting just to see where the issues, particularly because we are, co- I'm coming from a background where we're trying to eliminate injections, not entirely, but for routine vaccinations or treatment. And what I find there was that there was so much progress from previous years. And the representative from Egypt was saying that almost 15 years ago they only had, I think it was 15% of their healthcare workers vaccinated against hepatitis B. But due to a program that they have implemented, they now have over 50% um, with a target of 80% by the end of 2017. So it's just amazing to see how much progress has been made in a relatively short period of time. And then when you see this coming from a global perspective, just everybody doing their own little bit can make such a difference. And I think that's what really was brought home to me um, over the last few days, the massive amount of progress that has been made. I think for me, it's been really interesting uh, seeing innovators in my particular space of respiratory support, um, whether that's a CPAP device or an oxygen system. Um, I think 
from what I can tell, like five or six years ago, many of these devices did not exist. And seeing that they're all now filling these separate niches um, that are needed in low resource settings, um, it's been really inspiring to see that. I think this meeting is, is really important because it, it gives an opportunity for innovators uh, who are working on specific products or technologies to get involved in a global conversation and have access to uh, policymakers and, and global influencers like folks at the WHO or, or other large, uh, you know, multilateral organizations, and so it creates that that conversation that that usually doesn't happen, um, and it creates a, a really positive feedback loop where where the two parties are able to sort of trade information, uh, and then that leads to conversations where where innovators are sharing their stories and sharing their lessons learned and challenges they faced and successes. For me, l watching that collaboration happen sort of in, in, in front of our eyes, you know, mm -hmm. watching those sparks fly is really, really inspiring. The three of you are here today because you're all part of a new initiative funded by several governments and organizations called Saving Lives at Birth. Tell us more about it. So the Saving Lives at Birth partnership is a donor partnership of uh, USAID, uh, Norway, the government of Norway through NORAD, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Grand Challenges Canada, funded by the Government of Canada, uh, DFID, which is the, the UK's Department for Development, and COICA, which is the Korea International Cooperation Agency. And the donor partners came together in 2011, sat down and decided that there's an incredible diversity in the health outcomes of mothers and newborns around the world, dependent on where a mother is giving birth. And that leads to um, some really, really shocking statistics. You know, every roughly every two minutes, a woman dies in childbirth. And the donor partners came together and they said, what can we do to generate solutions in this area? And in particular, what are some innovative solutions that we can help um, move along th through the development process so we can get them out to the women and babies who need them the most? So the Saving Lives at Birth uh, program has been around now, as I said, since 2011, and we've launched seven annual calls. And our focus is really finding innovators like Jocelyn and Mary Carmel and, and figuring out a way that uh, we can support the development of these really important and fantastic innovations uh, and ultimately deliver them to, to healthcare workers and to patients uh, in low resource settings. So all of our projects are uh, focused in the maternal and neonatal health space with a particular focus on that 48 hour window mm -hmm. around the time of delivery, which is where the vast majority of maternal and neonatal deaths uh, occur. But of course, we have uh, innovators working on uh, the process all throughout pregnancy, delivery, and, and even afterwards. And you've worked on a particular device, correct? I have, yes. Can you tell us more about that? Sure, yeah. So I have developed and am now uh, distributing a low-cost newborn respiratory device. It's called uh, Pumani Bubble CPAP. And it was developed originally uh, with clinicians in Malawi because they needed an affordable, effective, easy-to-use, easy-to-repair uh, support for their newborns that are born prematurely. Um, and so I've been working on this product for about eight years now. And what what brought you to go, I'm going to build this? What's the story behind that? So it came about, actually, it was proposed by uh, clinicians in Malawi who had rigged together their own makeshift version of a CPAP device. Uh, they didn't have CPAP in their hospital. It was too expensive and just not Explain what a CPAP setting. is for our oh, sure. radio audience. CPAP stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure, okay. and it's essentially um, a machine with tubing, and the tubing delivers pressurized air into the baby's airway. They were basically making this up in Malawi? Yeah, so they essentially took a reverse vacuum pump uh, to provide the airflow. They connected some, I guess, extra tubing that they had around, um, connected it to a bottle to provide the pressure, 
and it worked fairly well for a few months. The nurses were sort of hesitant to use it. It didn't seem obviously like a device, uh, but it was really the only way that they had to provide this kind of support. Um, and from that, the pediatricians in this hospital uh, spoke to engineers at Rice University and said, we can really use a rugged, usable, um, and affordable CPAP in our hospital. So that's how the idea all came about. It's amazing. I've spent most of my career working in Africa, and so I've been through those hospitals. I know what they're making work, and some of the most ingenious innovations with next to nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also, you're right, durability, the ability to fix it, it's a mm -hmm. life changer. So Mary Carmel, I understand that you've been developing a patch, like a Band-Aid, that would help develop complicated, life-saving medicines in a pain-free way that will be particularly helpful for parents who need to provide medicines at home or doctors who are working in the field in places without great, healthy, clean water. Tell us more about it. So my Saving Lives at Birth project involves um, developing a transdermal patch using our microarray, um, but containing antibiotics, so amoxicillin and gentamicin, for the treatment of neonatal sepsis. Microneedles are a microarray patch, and what these are, if you haven't heard of them before, are micro-scale projections, usually um, arranged on a supporting base. And what they do is that they painlessly pierce the skin, breaking that top layer of the stratum corneum. And what that allows us to do is open up a network within the skin so that we can deliver drugs across the skin. So this avoids the issues of requiring injections. So you avoid issues with um, transmission of bloodborne infections, safe disposal, and also complicated calculations that are required for gentamicin. So that this could be given in an outpatient setting by a parent, a carer, for these really um, sick infants who are not currently being treated um, on an inpatient basis. Um, similarly with amoxicillin, you need fresh running water, um, reconstitution, and most often, the infants do not get the treatment. So what we are proposing is developing our microarray patch with the antibiotics combined on a single patch. The parent can apply the patch, the needles pierce the skin, they absorb interstitial fluid and swell. This opens up a network and dissolves the drug containing layer behind, which then is administered into the systemic circulation. And um, so it's a pain-free, um, blood-free route of drug administration. Wow, that's an amazing thing. I think even considering um, the impact and how health um, is directed and managed in different settings. So for example, comparing the health system in the UK with that in Uganda, in Ethiopia, and just seeing that how we need to bridge that gap. Um, and as we advance our own healthcare, we need to advance that in a global scale to have any lasting impact. And that, for example, the Ebola crisis, and um, we saw about how that affected began in Western Africa, but it affected us on a global scale. So how we need to work together to prepare for future events like that. I think one of the things you mentioned, the Ebola crisis, um, I arrived just as that was happening here in Geneva. And I don't know what I thought the World Health Organization would be, but then I realized, oh, it's a member state organization. Mm -hmm. That means all the nations come together, they collectively come up with a mandate, they set a budget of what they want to pay for, what they think is a service this organization will offer, and they have to work within the confines of that mandate. And one of the challenges with the Ebola crisis is they didn't actually have the mandate to respond the way we wanted them to in yeah. the heat of the moment. And so I got to, as a part of the American team that's here, observe and be part of the conversations amongst the other member states of how do we help the World War Organization adjust, like we need to adjust their mandates so they can do the thing that we want of them today. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just happen overnight because there's a crisis, you actually have to plan. And we take that for granted until we realize that it's as good as we as the member states make it to can be. Can make it, yeah. yeah. exactly. 
you know, I think the, the Ebola crisis was interesting because it it really highlighted the opportunity for innovators uh, like these folks here and in, in, in the work that they're doing and how that can be plugged in to respond to global uh, pandemics, epidemics like that. Um, you know, the, there was another grand challenge that was launched called Fighting Ebola, and we saw innovators come forward with really, really powerful solutions, many of which have gone to market and are being tested and used. And, and so I think it's inspiring to see this community um, because it's not just focused on maternal and neonatal health devices. It's a community with medical devices attacking every problem that we see across the world. How do we get all of these awesome devices that are being developed, how do we get them into the field? How do we get them used? How do we get them to the patients that, that need them the most? And we've already done that with, with many things. Jocelyn, you know, the bubble CPAP is being used all across Malawi, which is a really impressive feat. Um, but how do we continue to do that with all the well, other that things? Was a that tiny country and a mm-hmm. very yeah. big continent. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so how do we continue to do that with all the other devices and, and, and technologies that are being developed? That's a great pivot point. What are the challenges? What are the challenges you faced to get to today? So many. <laughs> to summarize, um, I think you know there was this whole hurdle of um, initially, you know, building the device and testing it and ensuring that it's safe and effective, um, not only in a lab setting but in a clinical setting, um, and then from there scaling it throughout Malawi. Um, you know, assuming that what works in one hospital will work in twenty-eight is just not going to happen. Um, so. It, you know, the whole other learning process and working very closely with our partners in Malawi and with the Ministry of Health um, and really making sure that they have ownership of the program and really um, buy into it and take it on as their own and not just um, as our organization coming in and leaving equipment and then, um, you know, not sustaining it. Um, and then more recently, I would say, um, working with my company, Third Stone Design, um, we've through the regulatory process and have commercialized the product, um, which is a whole other set of challenges in its own. And um, it's been it's been very interesting because I think there are really unfortunately few devices in the global health space that really make it to scale, make it to market, um, because there are so many barriers along the way. And so I think when you reach the point where you have regulatory approval, when you're looking for customers, getting the, the product out, there are very few examples of who to follow or how others have done it previously. Um, so it's it's been very eye-opening and a great um, learning experience, but always a challenge as well. What have been your challenges? I would follow on almost directly from Jocelyn in terms of regulation. Because we are presenting such a novel product, and there's been a debate for quite a while. Are microarrays, are they a medical device, are they a drug product because they contain drug and at the minute there there are there is very They're both yeah it's both exactly so there is no regulation around it um so we are constantly trying to develop our product with regular regulatory input so that our product is designed in a way that when the standards are made available or when they come into existence that we have our product market ready and interact with companies and get investment and um, when we still don't know where the regulatory um sphere is or what really is going on there um, so we just need to keep everybody on board and as many um, stakeholders input um, at every stage. That's one possible. of the benefits of Geneva in my mind is how often industry and governments come together in a neutral place like Geneva mm-hmm. to work out what those regulations should be, particularly in new cutting edge spaces and say, OK, what are the regulatory frameworks that we can all agree on, mm-hmm. hopefully in advance and not afterwards. Yeah, exactly. So that we are prepared um, for when the device is ready um, for large scale production that we have a device that is safe, is effective, and is suitable for implementation in a lot of um, countries. 
so we can get as much effect or impact as possible. Exactly. And I think, I think countries recognize that. They see the UN as um, sort of that stamp of approval as being really important for bringing a technology into their country. Because, of course, you want to make sure that any technology you adopt will be beneficial for your population. Right. So I think both member states and non-member states um, really look to the UN and other global organizations to really provide that verification that these technologies are um, are, are going to be ultimately uh, really impactful. What were the challenges of your partnership? <laughs> I think, as Jocelyn said, uh, there there are many. Um, so I, I'll, I'll distill it, I think, to two. Um, one of them is is a bit more of a, of a personal challenge. So our portfolio is it's 107 innovations at this point in time. And it's an incredibly robust portfolio. We have medical devices, we have diagnostic devices, service delivery approaches, and more. And so I think just for me as an individual, um, you know, working with our with our really fantastic team, um, trying to stay abreast with all the new developments in, the, in that space is a, is a, it's a tough it's a tough challenge. You know, just in terms of um, making sure that we're able to keep an eye on, on what's innovative and what's cutting edge, and, and and have great conversations with these folks as they go through their own challenges and try to help out as best we can. The second one that I'll mention just briefly is um, I think is as Jocelyn touched upon is sustainability. At the end of the day, we are we are making grants. We are we are awarding um, uh, dollars to innovators like you all, um, but those grants will end. And so after that money goes away, we want to make sure that these great technologies that have been developed and, and programs continue to live on and have uh, fantastic health impacts and, and continue to um, help out on the front lines um, where, where they're needed the most. So my second part to that theory would be, where have been the big successes? I think it's hard to choose uh, individual innovations. It's kind of like choosing a favorite child. It's <laughs> <laughs> not allowed. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. No matter what I say, I'll get in trouble some, you know, somewhere. The Grand Challenges model has been really exciting to a lot of people because it's uh, it's non-traditional in the sense that we're asking, we're posing a very large problem. We're saying maternal and neonatal health outcomes around the world need to change, need to get better. And then posing that to the broader community and saying, what do you all think we should do? I think one of the big successes is just the the sheer response that we've gotten from people and the enthusiasm. So, you know, over our seven calls, we've had, uh, you know, thousands, over 3,000 applications come in of really high quality, impressive innovation. Um, so, that, so that's one of which success. only 107, you said, have mm -hmm. yeah. gone so, to the next So you level. can imagine that this is like cre this is the cream of the crop. I think one of the other uh, successes that I'd like to highlight is this idea of leveraged funding. So, you know, we as a partnership have put $100 million towards solving this problem. But that $100 million has spurred on additional investment from non-donor partners. So we've had folks come in and put in an additional over $70 million into all of these projects, which is really exciting because ultimately, again, you know, that's where the sustainability is going to come from, is from other people investing. That's where the innovation lives on and has long-lasting health impact. Is there a project that stands out that has made it to that next level? One that comes to mind is uh, it's a device called Simprints. It's an organization... Uh, that came out of uh, University of, of Cambridge and of uh, Oxford as well. And they've est established a biometric fingerprint scanner um, that allows frontline health workers to immediately have access to the electronic health record of the patient that they're treating, which is often a problem in places where paper health records are lost or they're damaged or they just don't exist. It's all up on a cloud. Yeah, exactly. The cloud really enables the healthcare worker to understand what's going on with their patient. They're exploring alternative use cases even beyond health. Um, and they've received some great investment from, from other organizations outside of Saving Lives at Birth, and they're uh, moving towards a, a revenue-based uh, model, which is really exciting to see. I think it's worth saying for our listeners who are less familiar with this, and because I've had bosses who've come out from Washington who had no idea, so it's not like it's, a, it's an obvious, that if you go to places like Africa, in fact, cell phone access is much wider 
than anyone imagines. Mm-hmm. And so you think of all the development challenges that are very real and like electricity would love to give everybody electricity, but cell phones actually have leapfrogged so mm-hmm. many of these challenges. And so having the biometric data and being able to get records because you can do it off of your cell phone or your iPad, mm-hmm. that sounds like it's way far off. But in fact, you see way more of them in places and villages in the middle of Africa that you would not imagine mm-hmm. because that technology has actually made the leap. And so for our listeners who think that's, well, but how are you getting it there? In fact, this technology is often present when nothing else is. And so yeah. just making that link. No, I think it's a great point. This wave of, of you know, M-Health, E-Health, digital health is, is incredibly powerful. And, and the things that we can do with it are, are really exciting. How about you? Successes this year? Say in the past year, we've been able to bring on more local distributors um, to provide our product, um, you know, in Rwanda and Kenya, um, for example, and um, we're speaking with a number of other distributors, but it's really exciting because I think beyond just getting inquiries from clinicians from hospitals who are interested in our product, we're seeing that there are businesses also that are interested in buying our product and distributing it in their market as well. And that will really enable us to um, expand our distribution network significantly. So that's been really exciting to see. Um, so as you may know, that my, our technology is at a much more um, developmental stage and we do not have a final product as of yet. But I say our greatest success this year of recent is the, amount, the different types of applications that we were seeing our technology being used for. Um, so we have been able to attract funding from different sources. So for example, the Saving Lives of Birth, but then also from the private sector, from pharmaceutical companies who can see different uses or applications for a novel, but albeit simple technology that's low cost, so therefore can have um, a real impact on a global scale. And I think in the reverse to the cell phone technology, in fact, getting hold of needles in a lot of these developing countries is not as easy as it sounds. Yeah, um, exactly. And also then you have to dispose of those needles, right. um, which then is also expensive um, and mm. the healthcare risk to that is huge. So if we can develop something that minimizes the number of needles that are used, Obviously, we won't replace all injections. Sometimes you will need immediate drug administration. But for vaccines, if you can em- eliminate the injection, you can simply fold the patch over in itself and dispose of it in general waste that doesn't require safety disposal and can't be reinserted by anybody else. Um, so technologies like this that moves away from um, injections definitely can make a huge difference. It's amazing. I just want to go back to the point you made about the, the the supply chain and make a quick plug. And so the most recent grand challenge that we just launched in concert with the Gates Foundation is actually all around ensuring effective health supply chains. Um, and I think it's a critical piece that's often overlooked. Um, but at the end of the day, if, if the supply chain isn't there and if the system isn't there to support all the tools and technologies and medicines that we're developing and investing in, uh, then the health impact isn't there. So I think it's a really important point. I'm really, really uh, glad that you raised it, actually. Who has been inspiring you this year? Who's captured your imagination that you think that is a really great project? I wish I had thought of it. Yeah, so I've been working with a group out of Seattle called Via Global Health, um, and they've been involved with the Saving Lives of Birth Birth Partnership. And um, they are essentially... um, attempting to be the amazon.com of global health technologies and so i think it's it's incredible you know all these technologies coming out of universities and different organizations okay we have our product but how are we getting it out in the market and so via global health is starting to fill this gap and provide products developed through these partnerships to users and distributors around the world. So kind of linking up your distributors to the inventors. Yes, yeah, which I don't think has really been done on this sort of level before, so it's really exciting to see. That's very cool. 
Um, so my example probably would be recently I heard a presentation from a guy called Niall O'Donnell who is the CEO of a company in San Francisco. They're a river venture I think is their company and what he is doing in his team are they are looking at large pharmaceutical companies and looking at the pro drug products that they are shelving not because they're not effective or not safe but because it doesn't fit in with the portfolio of that company at that time. And what he is doing is then trying to invest in companies who will then take those drugs forward. And the drugs that he is targeting is for conditions and diseases, particularly tropical diseases that are being currently neglected. And I was actually really inspired by his talk. Um, I think there's two groups that I want to call out and, and sort of congratulate. First is, I think, the larger biotech, pharmaceutical and medical device community. In the past year, I think we've seen um, really strong leadership from organizations like GSK, Johnson & Johnson, Medtronic, and the establishment of centers focused on building devices or products for the developing world. And I think that's really important because we really need the private sector to jump in and get involved if we want to have broad-scale health impact. Uh, and then the second group that I'll just highlight, uh, the innovators on the ground. So healthcare workers, health providers, uh, working in the countries that we work in, whether it's in Africa, Asia, you know, South America, all over the world, who don't have access to these technologies right now, but still manage to innovate every day. Mm -hmm. um, I think, as you mentioned, that's, you know, that's the inspiration for a lot of these technologies. And so whenever I go to a clinic and I see some of the things that these providers are able to do, what they're doing right now is amazing. And we want to make their, their lives as easy as we possibly can. Yeah, amazing talent, just not the access to resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Thank you guys so much for taking time out this week to chat with us and be part of our podcast. Thank you for the Thank opportunity. You. Thank you. All right. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. If you would, please introduce yourselves. My name is Chitole Kosamali Majori. I'm a nurse in Uganda Health Institute, Mlago Hospital. It was located in Kampala, Uganda, which is in East Africa. Greetings, everyone. I'm Dr. Sharmila Anand from India. Um, I'm a social entrepreneur uh, running an organization called SEHPL in the southern part of India. I'm Dr. Kelly Thompson. I'm a gender advisor and programming specialist from Women in Global Health, and I'm from New Jersey in the United States. We've been brought here this week together because of the World Health Assembly. Tell me about your experience. The World Health Assembly is this huge meeting of uh, ministers, but also people from civil society, people who are technical workers um, in the field of global health. And, and it's a deciding body, right? So everything that happens here at the World Health Assembly is going to instruct what the Secretariat of the World Health Organization itself is going to do in the next year. The day before the assembly started, we honor some nominees that we call them the heroines of health. Um, who are here with us today. And the, the goal of that is to connect women who are working and, and who are leaders at the national or community level with what's happening at this global space. And I want to draw a thread there because it's not a small piece. Right. Um, some of the work that the U.S. mission has been doing in Geneva over the last two to three years is really look at why haven't we achieved our Beijing plus 20 right. goals. And one of them was that in UN fora, it was still pretty much an all-male space. And two years ago at the World Health Assembly, when we looked around at the panels and we looked around at who was present and speaking, it was predominantly men. Yet the audiences were full of women. It was this wake-up call. That we need to do something different to make sure that there are women cardiologists, there are women nurses, there are women health policy specialists. Why aren't they part of the forum in an official capacity? For people who are saying, well, it's obvious this just happens. No, no in no. fact, it doesn't. And we've been working really hard to make sure that it does. Definitely. So I'm so glad that you all are here and are adding to the voices that are at this table because it's 
something we have to be conscientious and mindful about. It doesn't just happen. Right, you have to be very deliberate about it. Because like right. you're saying, we've had these declarations and things in place for a long time. We know the abilities of women. We know what women can do. It's time that they're also in those leadership positions and taking things forward. Because I think the numbers are so stark. In some countries, over 75% of the health workforce is women. In some countries, it's as high as 89% of women are in the health workforce. We have to recognize this huge contribution of women to our development and make sure we have deliberate steps to, to achieve kind of the successes we need. <laughs> Building on, while the workforce is about 75%, if you look at the leadership, we're not there. Mm-hmm. No, we're, not we're, not. Rep- we're not represented at all. I also think about if women make up more and more of a particular swath of the healthcare system, then they're the ones seeing the problems that need yeah. fixes. And if they're not part of the decision making, then you might know what needs to be changed, but the leadership doesn't. And yeah. until we make that connection, a lot of the kind of baseline care, the everyday palliative care, will be lost because they're not talking to the leadership to understand what's not happening. The amazing thing is that these women with their beautiful stories have been able to really engage with people working at the global level and thinking more how do they connect with with these people, but also meet their needs because there's so many unmet needs um, that policy doesn't always address, but rather implementation is the, the key piece. So tell me a story any of you can answer. It's kind of blown your mind. I was actually really impressed with all of the the director general candidates. So that's kind of the main show at this assembly. Um, But we were actually able to engage all of those DG candidates to come and attend our event on Sunday. Um, And it just shows that the work that these women are doing isn't being ignored and that even people at the top leadership are paying attention and are ready to sign on board to really advance the role of women in global health and to advance women in the World Health Organization and elsewhere. And um, we heard from each of them and really inspiring stories. Um, when we connect with, obviously, with Dr. Sonia Nishtar, um, who is from Pakistan and has been doing amazing work um, in Pakistan and, and a really strong leader um, and a woman. And it's quite inspiring to kind of hear her story and hear how she was able to advance in quite a patriarchal society um, and become a first women cardiologist. She was serving in the role of recreating the health ministry. So I found her story really inspiring to see how she's really worked her way through these different levels and kind of skewed these gender norms that she felt and, and really advanced herself. So hopefully we'll see great things from her um, in the future, even though she wasn't elected. Fantastic. Just to add on to mm-hmm. that, while uh, the current uh, DG, he was there and uh, I was introduced to him at the event and we got a selfie together. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and when I actually showed him my card and told him, you know, that's the dream of creating a million smiles in India, he says, um, it should be a billion. Let's work towards it. And mm-hmm. I, I thought that was an amazing moment. And that to, to come out from the words of a leader, I, I'm sure we'd work towards that. So tell us about A Million Smiles. The, the reason behind uh, The Million Smiles of SEHPL is that uh, to create the real smile on a patient's face is to provide them a pain-free environment. And that, in our opinion, can be provided by the healthcare technical workforce that we are trying to skill. I believe compassionate healthcare people can actually create a meaningful uh, difference in the patient's life. And that's how we hope to create The Million Smiles. Yeah. How are we bringing on smiles in Uganda? My main goal was to bridge the knowledge gap in these patients because people didn't know why they come to hospital. They didn't know, what, didn't know why they're taking medication. They just kept swallowing drugs, going for monthly injections, which are very painful, but they didn't know why. And somehow it affected adherence. 
the patient that I lost because she didn't know how to live her life after surgery, she died. I went to school, I was given this knowledge, but it, it doesn't do anything when it's just in my head. I need to give it to people who need it so that it creates a change in, my, in their lives. So I started teaching them and I realized that uh, these patients, to be able to put a smile on their face, you, need, you don't need to give them money, answer their questions. That alone can make a great change in their lives. You've tapped into, as humans, we want to be seen mm-hmm. and we want our care to be personal to us. And I think we forget that in the data and the science sometimes. Right. It's yeah. that last five feet mm-hmm. of connecting with the actual human in front of you. And you've done that. I've done that. What are successes in the last year? Things that you're proud of that have happened in your spaces? Well, G is our partner, and we uh, look at skills creation and employability. Um, over the last years, there have been three success stories which have actually uh, created an impact for me personally. One has been when a 39-year-old cook came in and joined the program, and after one year of the program, she is now employed with a, uh, as a X-ray technician in a corporate hospital, earning a decent salary, and she feels proud about it. And I feel that that's the transformational change that we've been able to bring on in a person's life. The second was um, 12th pass girls who have not actually left their hometown, have actually left it, got trained, and today they are working as interns in hospitals. That empowerment, the financial empowerment, along with the academic empowerment has been a phenomenal change. And looking at those girls, now the other girls from the village are also coming up and saying, we want to uh, look at getting into academics. So that's the second one. And the third one has been one of the current students is actually a HIV positive mother. She's going through the program with the hope that she will get into frontline employment and without being discriminated. And so I, I see a lot of women actually getting in. All that they need is can someone just give them an opportunity and provide them the opportunity. I believe they can do so much more. How about you, successes this year? Uh, one of the successes was that at before the end of last year, I was able to carry out a research into the factors affecting adherence to warfarin, or some people call it comadine that drug which patients who have atrial fibrillation and have had mechanical valve replacement take for the rest of their life to prevent blood clotting Mm -hmm. on the valves. I had seen challenges in my practice that uh, people don't like to take it because it has so many restrictions. Uh, They don't eat that, you don't do this and that when you're taking it. So during my year of study, my research was focusing on looking out for those factors affecting adherence to that drug. And I helped many to be able to live positively, even if the drug had a lot of restrictions. There is another drug which can prevent blood clotting. It's called Valoxaban, and for it, it doesn't, doesn't have a lot of restrictions. So we started a clinical trial to try and see if that drug can work well enough in those group of patients like da- like warfarin does. So that one, we started it last year and it is still ongoing and we believe that the results we are going to get will be able to help our women and young children. 
So that has been my achievement. That's amazing. Yeah. And how about you? Um, and part of what we've been doing the last two years is um, bringing women together to kind of discuss their experiences in, in global health and their experiences with leadership, whether they're barriers or successes. We've had over 20 dialogues and thought leadership events. We've talked to over a thousand women. Um, and I think the the one woman that stands out, she said being invited on our panel was the first time that she had actually taken the moment to reflect on her own career. She was actually so inspired that she's taken forward work on gender and advancement on leadership, a whole mentoring program, um, and also targeting the young men that are working there as well, making sure that they also know how to be gender responsive or gender transformative. And one simple thing, just asking somebody to be on a panel and think about these issues can change like the a whole workplace. All right, let's back to the, the conference. You guys have sat in on other panels. You've heard other people speak. Is there anyone this week that you were like, wow, that is really cool? Well, I'm uh, totally impressed by uh, Terry, the CEO of uh, GE Healthcare, um, to actually stand up there as a mother of three girls and also as a leader and still making sure that the work is being done at at the right time, at the right space. It was just amazing to see the leadership. Well, mine will take a different direction because as we talk about women, even men are there. Mm-hmm. When I look at what I do, if my husband didn't support me, I wouldn't have done it because I spend most of my time in the hospital. Even when I leave hospital and go home, I'm doing work. There is what we call telenursing. Like, so I keep on my phone most of the time, on WhatsApp, answering questions, answering my phone. One of the heroines, she came from Ghana. She was Margaret. She was the only person whose pa- husband was there to support her. And I felt like, yes, we are women, we are doing all this, but we have men behind us who are supporting us because if they were not supporting us, we wouldn't have been able to do what we are doing. So mine's going to be a bit wonky, but um, Jen Beagle, who's the Deputy Executive Director from UNAIDS, I've seen her on a couple panels this week. Um, And she spoke about, again, this kind of organizational change. She recognized that women were missing from UN leadership and that she was one of the few women um, at the top level of an organization in the UN. Um, And she talked about how recognizing that problem at her level, but also throughout UNAIDS, and they've done things around budgeting for um, gender programming, making making sure there's kind of different programs in place that are going to help to advance women and change the culture within the organization. And I I thought it was really great to see how you can still be innovative in the United Nations. And I think that's a great model to keep taking forward in Geneva, in New York, all around the world. Even if you have this structure that seems quite bureaucratic, if you recognize, again, back to being deliberate, if you recognize there's an issue and you have exact things that you're gonna do, you can make change pretty quickly. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. I know it's a really busy conference and there's lots to see and do, but I appreciate you taking time to talk with us and be part of the podcast. Thank you. Thank you you so much. I can't thank enough. Mary Carmel Kearney, Jocelyn Brown, Vishnar Kapil, Dr. Kelly Thompson, Dr. Shamila Anand, and Kito Kaleko, Somali Majori, for joining us for these two parts of our podcast, helping us feature the World Health Organization's annual assembly. Thank you to the United Nations Information Services sound team at the Historic League of Nations radio studio for helping us do justice to our guests' great ideas. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. As we explained in the intro to the podcast series, each episode will delve into a completely different field. Collectively, they will tell the story of a diverse array of international experts 
our favorite of Geneva's geeks, and their innovative collaborations that will impact our future. Be on the lookout for our next episode, exploring how Geneva is at the forefront of discussions to achieve our gender equality goals by 2030. It's in the coming weeks. You can listen to the podcast at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in Geneva website, or subscribe on iTunes. Rate us and tell your friends. Send us your ideas and feedback. We look forward to bringing you into the fold of Geneva's geeky discussions that we couldn't stop thinking about. We hope that you find them compelling too. Thank you.